With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Oh my God, this is the perfect sounding voicemail for what we're going to talk about tonight. It's exactly what the warding message at Old Trafford sounded like that day. It's a very pleasant sounding British woman. Yes. Oh, it's a real cold open this week. Har, har, har. Players warmed up just 20 minutes before kickoff. An announcement over the tannoy. The instruction for fans in two stands to evacuate from the stadium after a suspect package had been discovered. Kickoff was initially delayed as sniffer dogs were brought in. As the players, including United's Michael Carrick, digested the news, the remaining thousands of fans inside the stadium were then evacuated. Most appeared to remain calm. Emergency services soon arrived at the ground, as well as a bomb disposal team who carried out a controlled explosion. In footballing terms, this was one of the biggest days of the season, with United hoping to win Champions League qualification. But instead, the sport has been overshadowed by concerns over security at one of the game's most famous venues. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Back to the Let's Get Weird Sports podcast. It has been a while since we have recorded. We actually recorded one of these a couple of weeks ago, uh, the one that we're recording tonight, actually. But I, the person that actually has a degree in media production, did a terrible job of recording it. So we're back, and we're going to just redo this one tonight. Uh, Of course, I am Travis Miller of HammerAndRails.com, your host, and with me tonight, as always, is Paul Banks of the Sports Bank in Chicago. Paul, are you frozen in Chicago yet? Yes, the hibernation is about to start. We could be maybe 48 hours not leaving the building, maybe 72 hours. We'll see how it goes. Uh, see, I had foot surgery a week ago, and so I'm already kind of stopped. I'm already kind of stuck inside and everything. So this just makes it a little bit more convenient in that regard. Yeah, your timing is perfect with that. Like, I have a friend who has the flu. We were going to do lunch tomorrow, and when she said that, I'm like, well, it's the right week to be laying around and doing nothing. I've played a lot of Red Dead Redemption. <laughs> I have uh, where I've been very lucky that the uh, day job lets me work from home, and uh, it's actually been kind of nice, so the perfect time to just kind of take it easy and stay inside, stay warm, and well... We might as well just do a podcast while we're at it. And tonight we have a very interesting topic, and it's one that was, it's kind of the first one that one of us has actually experienced in person before. And uh, this would be the infamous last day of the Premier League bomb threat for Manchester United. Uh, This happened a few years ago on the final day of the English Premier League schedule, which is always an interesting thing because you have all of the matches kicking off at once due to their rules of no colluding to have similar results and everything. 
And Paul, you were in Manchester for this when it happened, and you were actually trying to go to Old Trafford when when it happened, weren't you? Yes, this is a very special edition of Let's Get Weird Sports, and that here is actual firsthand boots on the ground kind of experience, and it was it's it's how I spent my summer vac well technically summer vacation. It was. The last day of a two-week odyssey across the British Isles, eight different cities, four different countries, and what perfect, what a what a perfect way to to cap it all off by the theater of dreams. And I made it halfway up inside the stand before I had to evacuate, so I never even saw the pitch. Oh man, I didn't even get to see the pitch because, like, that's one of the best things that I love when I go to Wrigley Field is you just come out of the concourse area and boom there's the ivy and it's it's just so magical so I, I can imagine that that would be a similar type of moment which uh for the theater of dreams as you call it and old trafford and all the other wonderful nicknames that it has it is one of the most iconic venues in all of metric football absolutely and you know tonight we will definitely be shuttling back and forth between british english and american english and we, you got the you got the party started there with metric football. Yeah, so uh, of course metric football is or soccer as it is known here in the states, but I like to refer to it as metric football. And when the U.S. men's national team is playing, I refer to every goal as freedom deposits and everything else because where else can you get jingoistic uh, like it is? I believe it was Bill Simmons once said one of the great things about the World Cup is just the history involved between the nations. Like, for example, if Germany is playing Argentina and you're an ex-Nazi war criminal, who do you cheer for? The country that allowed you to rise to power or the country that hid your crimes against humanity? And yet, here we are in 2019 fighting Nazis yet again. <laughs> I actually, there was a, I forgot what tweet it was, but it was something about um, one of the Nazi groups in Charlottesville used a version of the Red Wings logo. And they're like, if you told someone in 2016, in 2014, that Nazis were a thing in 2016, you'd be like, what? Why? <laughs> it, it has indeed been an odd time for sure. <laughs> so where, where should we start on this? Uh, should we give people a little bit of a background on kind of what it means on the final day of the premier league and how that goes down and everything. Yeah, let's let's start with that. This is called Championship Sunday, and they all every game kicks off at 3 p.m. and that would be uh, 10 a.m. Eastern. And this is when I mean, usually the championship is decided. There are no playoffs. Usually the title is decided by then. But there's other stuff going on. There's relegation. There's top four. And this was a huge this was a huge game in terms of top four and the difference between champions league and europa league and um you know i'll let you kind of fill the listeners in more on all that sure because the the way it works in the premier league you have 20 teams and they play comp the your regular season is a complete round robin schedule uh 19 matches at home against the other 19 teams and 19 matches on the road they figure it up three points for a win one point for a draw zero points for a loss and at the end, whoever has the most points wins the championship. As you said, there are no playoffs. Uh, there are there are post. There's no postseason, but there's many many things to qualify for. Like for example, 
in the Premier League, the top four finishers go to the UEFA Champions League, which simply making the group stage is worth several million euros for a, for a team. So you're talking about like thirty or forty million dollars, thirty thirty or forty million euros at stake just for simply qualifying for the Champions League, and then. After the Champions League, you have the Europa League, which the fifth and sixth place teams qualify for. It's a lesser competition in Europe. Uh, you still have the prestige of playing international soccer and being involved with the teams all over the continent, but it does not have the prestige as the Champions League. It doesn't have near the amount of money, uh, but it's still nice to qualify for. And then at the bottom of the Premier League, you have my favorite thing involved with international soccer. You have relegation, where they take the bottom three teams in the standings each season, season and they say, get the f*** out of here. You're going back to the championship, which is the best way to describe it for American sports would be like if the bottom team in the National League and the bottom team in the American League were kicked out every season of Major League Baseball and the top two teams, or the top teams in the International League and the Pacific Coast League in AAA got promoted to play Major League Baseball the next season. And again, tons of money involved because of the TV rights and everything. Much like just Purdue merely being in the Big Ten gets $50 million a year from the TV rights. Simply playing in the Premier League means a ton of money for these teams. So relegation often is a huge financial hit and you you don't want to be relegated because it's awfully hard to get back unless you're a more established team in the context of the final day of the season you have all of these things going on yes the championship is usually decided but you have teams playing to qualify for europe teams uh playing to finish higher in the standings because the higher you finish the more money you get and you have the dreaded avoiding relegation that's why all of these matches happen at the same time, because in theory, you could have a team decide know what their place is going to be, regardless of the outcome that day, and they decide to not try as hard or anything. So they do it in order to avoid any type of collusion and in order to avoid anybody making a ton of bets and trying to earn money on the side illicitly through gambling. Right. And, you know, we talked about relegation. Uh, my morning of this game actually began just a stone's throw away from St. James's Park and uh, your team, Newcastle United, who are back uh, in the yes. Premier League now, but were relegated a couple of years ago. Yes. Uh, I, uh, when I was picking a Premier League team, I decided to pick Newcastle, mostly because they were a fun team. They were battling for the to make the Champions League then. And they were a fun little team. They're not one of the big four or five that are always up there because you have, there's about six teams every year that are just the best of the best and take the top six spots in, in the Premier League. You have Liverpool, Manchester City, Chester, or Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester United, and Tottenham Hotspur. Those, those six are the big money clubs. They are always up at the top. But I, I'm one for an underdog, and I, I picked Newcastle, and the best way I can describe Newcastle is they are the Purdue of the Premier League. Uh, they, they can have seasons where they challenge and they do pretty well, but a lot of times they uh, ultimately end up being disappointing. 
but they are part of the uh, the Tyneware Derby with Sunderland, which takes its name from the Tyne River, and uh, that's that's just great. Is that they're called Derbies, and it's spelled like Derby, and those are what rivalries are called there. So, oh, absolutely, because right. you have the Manchester Derby, which is Manchester City, Manchester United, Arsenal, and Tottenham play the North London Derby, which that is one of my favorites because Arsenal for many years celebrated what they called St. Totteringham's Day, which is the club would celebrate the day of the season in which they clinched finishing ahead of Tottenham Hotspur. And I believe this might have been the season um, was it ended. recent one where it was that the year that it ended or was it, I think the year before it ended, no, no, no. Yeah, you're right. This was the year where Tottenham thought it was going to end because they were the last team standing between uh, Leicester City and their 5,000 to 1, literally, uh, champion title. And Tottenham was the last team eliminated. But Tottenham imploded so badly in the last two games that Arsenal did surpass them. So you're right. Yeah. And so they got them on the last day of the year. And uh, it went. They, they were able to celebrate it for 22 years. So 22 years, Arsenal fans, just this semi-meaningless thing, which is that they would celebrate every season. But they were, they were able to rub it in for the longest time. And then finally in April 2017, not only did Tottenham beat Arsenal, or not only did they finally finish ahead of them, but they beat Arsenal to clinch finishing ahead of them finally. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I just love like the pettiness and just the whole. I mean, that's what makes these rivalries so great. The emotions run so strong; it's just crazier than anything we have here. And this is before we even start discussing hooligan firms, which is basically a bunch of people that they don't care so much about the soccer, but they they go to uh, essentially just beat the living crap out of people. <laughs> and I think that's where um, you know my. I think that's where my dad gets his idea of what he thinks soccer is. He just, he doesn't follow the sport. He doesn't pay attention to it, but I think he, he is, or even the Chicago fire here. He thinks there are, he, he thinks there's European hooligans here in Bridgeview, Illinois or something. (laughs) Which can you imagine if big 10 teams had hooligan firms that would go to visiting stadiums? Well, we definitely have online versions. We definitely have, uh, especially even the Ohio State fan base. (laughs) Ooh, come at me, Buckeyes. (laughs) You have all these rivalries and everything else, and that's that's really what kind of makes soccer so interesting to follow because there's so much nuance and everything else. So one of the things that really makes soccer stand out especially in Britain, is the age of the stadiums. And Manchester United's Old Trafford is, like many of their other stadiums, was originally built like early 1900s. Some of them even go back to the late 1800s for when they were built. Old Trafford was built in 1909, which is three years before Fenway Park, the oldest stadium in any North American professional sports. And you also have the added hey, the Nazis bombed it during World War II and they weren't even able to use it for a while because it was lying in ruins. (laughs) So, I mean, there's just so much history there. And with Manchester United being as successful as they are, 
it really is one of the premier facilities in the entire sport. And I can understand why you would want to go if, if given the opportunity. Right. It is. Um, Manchester United is, is right up there with Real Madrid and Barcelona as they top the most highest earning, most prestigious brands, most followed, most popular, uh, most revenue, you name it. it. Those are the three biggest in the world. So, I mean, this is... This is a mecca, and it was um, actually, yeah, it was bombed during the Blitz. Uh, the Nazis were trying to hit some of the major industrial targets in Manchester. The The northwest of England is, is very blue-collar. It's very industrial, and they were trying to, um, you know, hurt the Allied's supplies and infrastructure there, and... Uh, there's two Imperial War Museums in England. One is in London, of course, and the other one is in Manchester, and it's not far from the stadium. So um, it's interesting that it was a stadium that was actually bombed, and this is a story about a bomb that didn't really exist. And then when we get into the epilogue and we get to what happens later, there, there of course, was a real bombing that does in a sort of ancillary way relate to uh united that occurred uh a year later but we'll we'll touch on that down the line in this podcast yeah and yeah this was a stadium that it set empty for eight years after the bombing so but it's now grown into one of the larger stadiums in all of soccer so it, it would be so interesting to to actually see a game there and I, w- I would love to see it and just because I'm interested in all that history and everything and it was nicknamed the theater of dreams by Bobby Charlton and they have like so many other of these so many other of these stadiums and whatnot they have memorials to past teams they have the memorial to a uh, Manchester United team where several members died because they were leaving Munich in the middle of a snowstorm and their plane crashed. Yeah, and that's just, coming up February 4th. I, I right. think it's February 4th, 1958. You know, amidst all of that, you're in Manchester here and you have the opportunity to go to a game. So just kind of take it from there on how, you know, what it was like that day and leading to the state, leading to your visit to the stadium. Yeah, I mean, United is the team I write about the most, uh, the team I blog about the most. Page click whore. Oh, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, what? Page click whore? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> yeah, well, somebody would said to me, they're like, writing about United is like free cake. And I'm like, yeah, that that's that is true. <laughs> hey, I like cake. I need to eat. Yeah, you know, you know. Otis the cat, he needs he needs some somebody needs to keep providing him cat food and that doesn't pay for itself. Oh yeah. Yeah, it, it's easy to become a Manchester United fan when page views are an important part of your existence. So um so it actually yeah, that's actually it all began in twenty eleven when they came here to play the fire and um I went to a Sir Alex Ferguson press conference at I think the Peninsula Hotel or it was at one of the hotels on Magmile where they always stay. And that's when I learned about the great power of United uh, generating web traffic. And then then um, a couple of years later, NBC bought the rights and I could watch the games on TV in the, mo- in the mornings. And pretty soon I found an MUFC Chicago group. And um, 
So this day was uh, supposed to be a realization of a dream come true. It was supposed to be a culmination. Many, many years in the making. It was, um, I began the day extremely anxious and nervous and miserable because I was sleep deprived because the ticket broker ghosted me. And I had spent the last couple of days just leaving messages, phone calls, emails, whatever, and getting no answers at all. So I came into uh, the Hotel Football, which is um, owned by a couple of members of the Class of 92, some of the biggest club icons. And uh, the Class of 92 is another, that's like a whole nother story. It's like a bunch, some of the greatest stars in the game's history, including David Beckham for... For our people who don't follow soccer at all, David Beckham is the one name they know. But yeah, so so I arrived at this hotel, which is across the street, and then that's kind of how my day began. Is it a uh, hotel football a little bit like Sky Dome, where they have a hotel in the stadium, or hopefully without the illicit activities that that hotel became known for, <laughs> but... Oh, no, yeah, it actually served a good purpose later in that Having a hotel room or being a hotel guest, I was able to go up high and like look over and take some good pictures of the crowds that dispersing once I was out of there. So um, I'll be sure to send you those tweet pics later tonight. But being there is this is the reason I got in is I checked in. I went to like a hospitality suite they had in the hotel or whatever it it really wasn't a suite. That's not the right word. But um, eventually a manager or concierge just gave me a free pass to like the actual high roller, like corporate suites in Old Trafford because it was going to the game was going to kick off in 20 minutes. And whoever that ticket was for was obviously somebody who is too important to be there and had something else to do. So he obviously felt sorry for me. I came from 4000 miles away and he gave me the ticket. So I'm like, wow, we did a total 180 here, just completely different roller coaster of emotions. And then a couple of minutes later, the emotions went on the other side of the spectrum yet again. And it was another reversal. Yeah. So, um, I get about halfway in the Sir Alex stand and this was actually the very first part of the stadium that was evacuated. And I'm up like two or three escalators And then I hear this message, and it sounds exactly like the Skype voicemail. It's this um, extremely polite British woman saying, Oh, um, would it be too troublesome to disperse right now? So this recording just played over and over, and it, it it was very, very British. And that's when I'm just like, what is going on now? Like, what? Yeah, Otis, this is the... (laughs) <laughs> he was sleeping the whole time and then now it's like right on cue and we're well, he's talking gotta tell his side of the story exactly he's like this is three this was actually three weeks before i adopted him so this is before i'd even met him but it was pretty close to that and i think now that we're getting into the part about turmoil he's getting angry yes otis is the best member of the podcast our sound engineer one is correct with that you know, Juan has a doctorate in meteorology, but uh, he, his best title is our sound engineer because he clearly can do my job better than I can do it. He, he I went to school for four years to do this kind of crap, and he can do it on the side better. So that should tell you something about my own level of education and uh, uh, just my general intelligence. You know, we all have different 
KSAs, knowledge, skills, ability, to use a, uh, a business school word. <laughs> we, you know, you could always pivot to something else with your core competencies. <laughs> so anyway, we're back at Old Trafford, and a polite British lady is asking you to leave the stadium lest you might explode. <laughs> so <laughs> I can imagine yeah. how, how strange that has to be. They really didn't give much information. It was like a recording. I think it was a recording or kind of a blanket, vague general message, which we all had to evacuate. And obviously, you don't need to say anything to already feel weird and scared and strange and all kinds of bad things because it didn't take long until word got out that it was a suspicious package. And then from there, um, the first rumors that started to circulate were about the threat level in Northern Ireland being raised from moderate to substantial, which went from like level DEFCON 2 to like DEFCON 3. Um, well, I forget if DEFCON 5, if 5 is like the highest, it went from like 2 to 3. It's, it's like the British uh, MI5, you know, Britain Security Service. It's like their version of when we have the color-coded terrorist warning system. And the first rumors that started up um, related to the Irish Republican Army. And that was very, very fresh in my mind because I had just gone to Ireland and I went uh, to Belfast. I went to Northern Ireland. I took a tour of the Troubles. And we went to this giant wall in Belfast that they ironically call the Peace Wall. And, I mean, this is exactly what all this crap with our government is about right now. Like, this is what the thing would kind of look like. But, of course, you know, it's not very long, but it's just as high and big. And someone threw a bottle at us. And I still, to this day, don't know if that was just legitimate grassroots hooliganism, if that was, like, a real idiot, you know, starting crap with us, or if that was staged because... When you first get on this tour, like the guide is just like, oh, this is what you've seen on CNN. This is all the, um, yeah, I know, Otis, it is troubling. That's why it's called the Troubles. But, you know, during all that period in Premier League history or English soccer history, no game had ever been evacuated due to a bomb threat, even when all these bombings and the all the terror of these bombings were going on. So this game is actually very historical in that regard. And even that is exceedingly British there by just calling it the, the Troubles. Because it's like the entire nation is trying to tear itself apart over this. But it's just the Troubles. We, we don't discuss the Troubles. Yeah, we, we, can, we don't show any emotion here. We just, we just keep that in check. <laughs> it, it's like um you know because louis van Hal was the manager at the time and you know josie Mourinho has been sacked now too and both of them um were known for for playing a bland boring defensive ball control slow kind of you know it'd be like uh like dick bennett when he was at wisconsin basketball like a, a soccer equivalent of that and i love how soccer announcers would be like Mm, he played pragmatic. <laughs> and it's it's also significant that this was one of the first Premier League matches that was postponed because I know for the longest time, Britain had its reputation for hooliganism and everything else. And 
I believe the first time we recorded this, we talked about how Liverpool fans were kind of blamed for the Hillsborough disaster, which is its own issue that ESPN did a really, really good 30 for 30 on uh, before. But they were famous for, you know, these teams have these hooligan firms and everything else, but even then they haven't canceled or postponed games like in so many other areas of the world where, you know, you have some Eastern European countries, it seems like they're playing in empty stadiums or have vacated results every week. And the most recent example around the world being El Super Clásico in Buenos Aires between Boca yeah, Juniors in, in and River Plata. What's that? Uh, between Boca Juniors and River Plata. Yeah, that had, I mean, that is, hooliganism is not just a European thing, but it probably gets the most attention. The European fans probably get the most attention. I mean, what happened in Argentina was just an atrocity. Um, Liverpool has had a lot of incidents with um, AS Roma, the um, the Italian, they call them ultras. They, they've, but anyway, uh, I'm glad yet you, you brought up Hillsborough because that was actually the first thing that was going through my mind um, when this happened during the evacuation. Uh, the week before, I had attended uh, Liverpool's final home match of the season. And this this was the first home game, home Premier League game Liverpool had had since the latest, uh, since the final verdict on Hillsborough, since the new inquest. And this was, this was really like when it was like, okay, now the families of the victims have closure. Now they have vindication. This was because when Hillsborough happened and, you know, for those unfamiliar with it, Hillsborough was an FA cup semifinal between Liverpool and Nottingham forest played in Sheffield at Sheffield Wednesday stadium. And it resulted in the crush and trampling of 95 Liverpool fans. A year later, another fan who was hurt, uh, and the trampling died, so that's why it's the the rallying cry is JFT ninety six justice for the ninety six. So what basic do you know? I it's very complicated. It'd be a whole nother podcast in itself. But to kind of sum it up, the media, um, especially Rupert Murdoch's son, they were probably the most egregious. They played right into the hands of the government and the police and the local authorities and covering up their own negligence, their own mismanagement, their own uh, gross malfeasance. And they spun it into a way to try to like blame the, it was pure victim blaming. It was a way of blaming uh, the fans saying that they were just rowdy, drunk, crazy, whatever. And it took that long. It took 27 years for the truth to come out. And that's what makes the 30 for 30 on Hillsborough so great. Is that You're telling me that Rupert Murdoch was behind a coordinated effort to hide the truth and victim blame and direct uh, blame away from those that might actually be responsible for something? I'm not really buying it. Yeah, it just it just doesn't fit the Rupert Murdoch brand. I mean, because he's such <laughs> a warm, cuddly, gracious, giving man. <laughs> There was so Hillsborough was definitely top of mind when I was in Liverpool. They made they printed out scarves that were like it said we were right or justice is served. And um, even though this happened in Sheffield, the the city of Liverpool has three different memorials to Hillsborough. There's one um, at the cathedral. There's one at the stadium. There's one in the town center. And 
Um, my my trip to Liverpool was great. It was seventy seven and sunny, and it was a fun game, and everybody there got a log, and I had Scouse pie, and but when you have a bunch of people exiting the stadium and you've just seen that last week and it's all, I mean, what are you going to think of obviously first? Right. Right. And so what was it, what was the reaction like? Like how was the crowd handling everything? Surprisingly chill. I couldn't get over that. Um, Once we all kind of got off the ground, I saw like a lot of people kind of tailgating and drinking and eating and just very confused after a while. But, um, Obviously, that was only after a point of trying to get answers because this was that when when people, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm very impressed by how when the mass exodus happened, there were no incidents, there was no hooliganism, there was no fighting, there was no panic. It was all orderly and just very calm. I, I was shocked by that. And then when we were off the stadium grounds, then there were a lot of kind of worries about what was going on because they did have a controlled explosion. I mean, that's not how you want to spend your Sunday. Is that something where there's a controlled blast? <laughs> well, and it just seems odd that they would do that, that there would be a controlled explosion while there's still a crowd around too. Oh no, this was done after everybody was out of the, this was done by the bomb squad and they'd found out what it was. It mm. was, um, if you Google this thing, it's pretty scary looking. It's it was a fake. It was a cell phone taped to a pipe, and it was found in a toilet. And it was a facsimile of a real uh, facsimile of, of a pipe bomb, and it was um, left behind during a training exercise on Wednesday. This game was on Sunday. It was left on the previous Wednesday. Wow! And um, wow! It's like you give points to you give points for discovering it, but then you realize at the end that it was a training device. <laughs> I'm sure that that firm, that security trading firm, I don't think they're doing really well right now business-wise. <laughs> I wouldn't think so. Probably hard to find work there in, in Manchester for that. Well, maybe they could go work for The Sun or another Rupert Murdoch publication because we know they have no standards. Either that or they'll probably work for City since they stopped a United match. I mean, that would be something that I would expect a rival soccer team to do is hire a a firm that causes their rivals problems. And then that's what kind of led to the all the weird conflicting emotion on this day. And that first, like Old Trafford's the number one trending term on Twitter during all this. And Manchester United and Bournemouth and all these other terms related to it are up there so a lot of people are kind of like how are you okay are you alive are you accounted for what is going on and as you could imagine at a stadium of seventy six thousand, service is not the best so that was kind of priority number one for me was to get back to the hotel which is right across the street which is a double-edged sword because when your hotel is right by, you know, supposed, when you don't know what's going on and it's ground zero, like, that's not good because you want to get away from this. But at least I was able to then go up high and, like, get some good photos of what was going on and kind of linger around for a bit to see what information I could get. Because I'm starting to get a lot of messages are coming in from people all over the world. And, you know, this is like this huge vacation I've been planning for a very long time. And this is the end of it. and something I've been look forward to for like a whole year, two years. And they're just kind of like, what's going on? And then, you know, once it became known that 
this was just pure incompetence or carelessness or blundering, then the Manchester United schadenfreude started. And everybody who hates them is just like, oh, look at those idiots. You know, they lost $15 million now because of their own greed and selling out their stadium for this exercise. And then, and then it became a joke. <laughs> yeah, and then you still have to play the match because wasn't it that they were still trying to, they had like the smallest chance to get into the Champions League, uh, assuming they won the match and by a certain number of goals? Right. Uh, Manchester City did not, they needed them to lose in the final day. Because if both Manchester clubs won, then they were going to have to win this game by like eight to one or seven to one or something crazy. And I actually did. I do remember watching the replay on the couch when I was still jet lagged when I got home. It was on the Tuesday night. They won three to one, but it wasn't enough. And it ended up costing Louis van Gaal his job. And then they got relegated to the Europa League, or as I call it, the NIT of European soccer. <laughs> it's a pretty apt description, yes. So, so that so then they get releg- so they get sent down to the Europa League, and um, one year later they won the Europa League, and this is the first time in in the history of United that they have won this tournament, and. A lot of that mostly has to do with the fact that they're not um, ever in it because they're always in the Champions League. But nevertheless, this was the first time that they had won it. And this took pl- the final game was played. Uh, they beat Ajax, and it's spelled like Ajax, but it's pronounced Ajax in Stockholm, Sweden. And this took place two days after the bombing at Manchester Arena in which a blast by an Islamic terrorist during an Ariana Grande concert, killed 23 and injured 250. So they wore special jerseys, uh, special patches to honor um, the victims. And after the game was over, Paul Pogba, who was the world's most expensive player at the time, that has been since surpassed by Neymar, he said, we won for Manchester. We played for the people who died during his uh, post-game interview. And Pogba's a stand-up guy. I know Pogba was a member of uh, the French national team that won the World Cup last summer, too. So he bought them all rings. Yeah, yeah. And so you know, he he's one of the leading voices in current soccer, and you know, was really right at the top, playing for Manchester United, and of course for the French national team, which is the best team in the world at the moment. And he penned a really good um, essay. I forgot what magazine it was for because he's. He's Muslim, and he penned a really good essay about after the explosion about you know what Islam really means, and you know telling people don't you know don't conflate terrorists with Islam and everything. And he's he's a mis. A lot, I think a lot of people misinterpret him because he likes to dance and he's got like crazy hair and he's flashy. But like you said, he's a real stand-up guy. He's 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 definitely someone to root for, not just because of how he plays, but how he acts. I mean, he's definitely one of the good, he's definitely um, one of the good guys in the sport. Absolutely. And you mentioned them winning the Europa league. And this is, this is a relatively new development. I know they've only had it for the last couple of years, but winning the Europa league is actually a back door to qualify for the champions league. Because if you do not, 
a lot of people don't realize that these seasons are played concurrently. So you're playing the Champions League, but you're also playing your domestic league to qualify for the next year's Champions League. And Manchester did not play well enough. They finished sixth in uh, the 2000. 16, 17 season, so they didn't qualify for the Champions League that year through the Premier League. However, because they won the Europa League, there is a new rule that the winner of the Europa League automatically qualifies for the Champions League the following season if they don't qualify through their domestic league. So they were able to back their way into the Champions League thanks to the Europa League. Right. It, it's it's kind of like a weird roundabout way and all's well that ends well in that regard. And wouldn't you love to see the NIT do that? You could go to the NCAA tournament the next year. <laughs> and I think Penn State's won like a bunch of NITs. They would probably be in the NCAAs all the time that way. I still remember the Big Ten media day when Patino said... He's like, we won the NIT in, I don't, last year, and I don't know, do you celebrate that, or is it weird? Are we supposed to celebrate that? And I'm like, I'm like, they did? And I'm like, oh, that's right, they did, because I didn't care or pay attention. I forgot who won it. Uh, see, I'm, I could see it as a, you know, celebrated, it is a postseason tournament. It's not, it's not easy to win or anything, and it's still prestigious. It's been around for a while, but, you know, just, enjoy the trophy, you know, maybe hang a small banner in your gym, but it's not nearly like making a final four or anything. No, but it, it would have been pretty funny if, um, if Michigan had beaten Villanova, then Penn state and Michigan, their two meetings would be the college basketball version of the UEFA super cup where the Europa league and, uh, champions league winners of the year before play each other. And it's basically a glorified exhibition, I know, at that point. For the community shields. <laughs> now, here's the fun thing. The Big Ten has actually won the NIT one, two, three, uh, four, five times since they last won an NCAA tournament. Uh, Michigan won it in 2004. Ohio State won it in 2008. Penn State won it in 2009 and is the defending NIT champion in 2018. And Minnesota won it in 2014. Yeah, so that must have been 2015 media day then that Patino said that. So, yeah, title town. Uh, One thing I I wanted to add about uh, the bomb scare game was United went on to become what is believed to be the first sports club to hire a full-time counterterrorism manager. According to Press Association Sport, the position was filled by a former inspector from Greater Manchester Police's Specialist Search Unit. Oh, and that man's name was Jack Bauer. <laughs> <laughs> and on a personal note, my trip to across the UK ended with this game, and it began with, uh, on the very first day, I got into a Twitter fight with the Leprechaun Museum. <laughs> Are you creating an international incident whenever you go to Europe? It's kind of like that Simpsons episode where um, Marge says, uh, you know, she says to Bart and Lisa, only your father could take a part-time job at a small town newspaper as a restaurant critic and end up with a target of international assassins. (laughs) (laughs) There's the one where he... um, you know, he he just gave everything a good rating, and they got sick of it. So then he just started giving everything a terrible rating. So 
they like have all the ethnic stereotypes for each ethnic restaurant and they're all trying to kill him at like uh, the Springfield uh state fair or you know county fair or whatever it was <laughs> oh my so that that would be your adventures with the premier league and international soccer i mean and i it's it's so fascinating because i i find i like soccer i especially like the world cup and everything I've been to a, uh, I believe they were in the North American Soccer League at that point, the, an Indy 11 match here in Indy. It was a lot of fun and everything, but it, you just, it's you know it's not the same. You know it's not the same as it is internationally, and it would just be so fascinating to see that. Right. I mean, when you watch like an MLS game, you probably, it doesn't really register until the guy who's over 35 who is very well accomplished and a huge name but is a couple steps too slow and can't get in a game and a european club comes over here and then just dominates the to- just completely obliterates the league and you're like oh okay so there's the difference yeah because you got bastian schweinsteiger who's on the downside of his career is just rolling for the chicago fire you got wayne rooney who is also on the downside of his career and former Manchester United star. Uh, isn't he playing for DC United and has had like a DUI or two and he's just rolling through MLS. Yeah. That guy has really have, uh, he really needs an intervention when it comes to his dream. <laughs> My God. Yeah. He just came in. Oh, uh, he's also not like the most interesting interview subject on the planet either. Um, not very interesting to talk to. But, um, yeah, you had three members of this United team are in MLS. That would be, we named two, and then Zlatan. Oh, God, I love Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Uh, the the uh, 2015-2017 Manchester United team in which, yeah, two, one guy was, it, yeah, like n- none of them played, and they all went to MLS and dominated. And one of the other stories that I like about Zlatan is I think he said something along the lines of, yeah, um, if my wife would let me, I would improve soccer in this country by sleeping with as many women as possible. (laughs) You know what he said when he was here? He said something like, um, I hear they don't ever sell out, so maybe I should come more. He's like, they came with the wind, and we came with the sun, and the sun was the stronger today. Yeah, I mean, that guy. He's a character. He's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, I always wonder, like, where the ego, I mean, because obviously a lot of it's a bit, but I wonder how much of it is legit. I mean, it's so funny. (laughs) He wants, um... Want are he once lobbied to have Sweden change their national anthem so it could be about him. <laughs> also, my impersonation of him is terrible. I don't do Swedish accents. I it's awful. <laughs> I don't know that there's too many that do Swedish accents. Maybe we should maybe we should hang up hang out in an IKEA more often. I don't know. Well, I thought it was it was pretty funny though. After this uh, game was over, and I went back to the hotel bar. And I met a couple locals. They obviously only know of America as New York and Los Angeles because they hear my accent and they think I'm like exotic. Like, are you from New York? I'm like, no. I'm like, are you from Los Angeles? I'm like, no. So then they like ran out of places to guess. 
<laughs> Let's drop them in the deep south and see how they feel for a while. And then one of them told me that, oh, do you know Gig Shack, my mate? And I'm like, let me run that through my translator of British English to American. Um, Ryan Giggs, who's famous for having sex with his sister-in-law, had sex with one of your... Uh, okay, yeah, this checks out. This makes sense. This works, yeah. Oh, my. And that's just... It wasn't there. Oh, oh, it wasn't uh, Robbie. It was uh, Robbie Fowler for Liverpool, not Ryan Giggs. But uh, one last soccer anecdote here to show how nutty these people are. Robbie Fowler playing for Liverpool once uh, snorted the end line in celebration like he was doing a line of cocaine (laughs) after scoring a goal. Which is just that was so, the day uh, he became president. Our, our sound engineer has just reminded me that we need to start wrapping it up because we've gone well off topic. Uh, we'll try to get a couple more in here uh, in the coming weeks and months. Uh, we've not really decided on a schedule or what we're going to talk about for the next episode or two, but uh, we do appreciate you for listening to the Let's Get Weird podcast and this one being the first one that is autobiographical as. Paul was right there in the middle of everything when it was possible that Old Trafford might blow up underneath his feet. Yes, this was definitely a very special episode. So, on the next very special episode of the Let's Get Weird podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So, once again, thank you for listening. Uh, For Paul, for myself, and everyone else with the Hammer and Rails Podcast Network, Thank you for listening, and we'll be here the next time that you want to get weird.